0: Welcome to episode two of Beyond the Obvious, a podcast series organised by FASTA, the Foundation for the Economics of Sustainability, and the European Health Futures Forum. I'm Sean O'Conline, the Falkes Feheroiv And I'm
1: Caroline White, the Falkes
0: In this episode, we'll be examining the notions of progress and improving welfare for all. Later on, we'll hear Professor Clive Spash critiquing the idea of green growth and, more generally, the role that monetary-style measurements are being allowed to play in our economic planning and decision-making.
1: Before that, we'll hear from Dr. Benjamin Held, a researcher who's been involved with the development of an alternative measure to GDP, which may better evaluate the extent to which a society is prospering. But firstly, we'll hear a poem that comes directly from the front line of global economic growth.
2: What flows on the assembly line is streams of people. From the east or the west, standing or sitting, in blue uniforms and white caps, at workstations for their fingers, with names of A234, A967, and Q36. Some insert themselves to put on springs and screws. They drift in and out of the constant flows of people and products. Like fishes, they pull customer orders, profits, and the GDP, day and night while their youth, vision and dream push the prosperity of the industrial age forward. Amid the factory noise, they carry a lonely existence. Men and women flow into each other but remain strangers. They are constantly choked at the deep end owning glues, screws, nails, plastics, coughing lungs, and sickened bodies flow on top. The assembly line never stops tightening the valves of the city and the fate, tightening the yellow switches, red threads, and grey products, the fifth carton loaded with plastic lamps and Christmas trees, youth on the work cars, Li Bai, love that boils and cools. It might recite softly, oh, wonderlust. Within its tiny confine, I catch a glimpse of the movable fate and scribble down some poetry of industrial age in a southern city.
1: That was the poem Assembly Line by Teng Sao Xiong, translated into English by Yu Yan Chen. Deng Xiaosheng, born in 1980 in rural Sichuan, is one of a group of Chinese factory workers who are using poetry to communicate their experience of industrialization. As the poem implies, work on an assembly line isn't always easy or good for your health. So how can we tell whether all the toil and stress of industrial work is actually worth it for the individuals involved and also for society as a whole? Sean talked to Dr. Benjamin Held, who's part of a team who are working on developing a National Welfare Index for measuring how well a society is doing.
0: Well, Benjamin, you have been deeply involved in the development of the National Welfare Index. Could you describe this area of FEST work to us, and in particular, your own personal
3: interest in its whole development? Well, uh, maybe first, uh, some few sentences about FEST it has four divisions. I'm part of the sustainability division. Um, and, well, alternative welfare measurement is one of the major well research areas of our institute. Um, other areas are social and ecological transformation, sustainable consumption, and for me also uh, policy instruments for internalizing external costs.
0: Okay. And can you describe to us what the... National Welfare Index itself is, and maybe why it is uh, so
3: unique, or is it unique? Well, uh, the National Welfare Index, uh, short NWI, maybe it's a little bit better for the next few questions, uh, is an indicator which tries to measure economic welfare uh, in a more complete and and therefore better way than cross-domestic product as GDP does. So, um, because of that, uh, my colleagues here at FEST, uh, Hans Diefenbacher and Dorothee Rodenhäuser, and myself, uh, and in cooperation with Roland Zieschang from the Free University in Berlin, created the NWI, which is based on the Index of uh, Sustainable Economic Welfare, which is already, uh, I think, was in the 1970s created somewhere, I think, in, in the US. The background behind alternative welfare measures like the NWI is that GDP. Currently is well the most important indicator for politicians and the public to assess how their country is doing, and we think this is, uh, that GDP has many deficiencies which make it not a good indicator to to assess the welfare level or welfare development of a state so well and we can also say that most uh, the creators of gdp didn't uh, think that there, that gdp would be a good measure to well to measure welfare and uh, i think also most statisticians who are calculating gdp today would say that gdp is not a measure for welfare so because of that uh, we tried to develop a better measure to measure welfare Well, to give a brief overview of NWI, NWI consists of overall 20 components where some of the components are positive, like consumption or housework, and other components like environmental damages, for example, of CO2 emissions are negative. And then we sum up all of these 20 components, and that constitutes the NWI then. And one thing we have to make to sum it up to make it possible is that uh, every component of NWI has to be in a monetary value. So we have to monetize anything. So this is also an important uh, limitation of the NWI because of that we can only include aspects of welfare which can be monetized. So uh, subjective things like life satisfaction cannot be included in the NWI. So.
0: Does that actually mean that there are some things which you would like to include that are not included? Or how do you address those particular challenges of integrating all of those elements together into into a single uh, index?
3: Well, you have to look as the, on the NWI as a measure of economic welfare. And there are limitations with that, of course. So um, you can only look at it at the way that we taken the GDP as well as the approach we are trying to improve so it's an accounting method and because of that many things cannot be included you have always have to say that uh, the NWI will never tell the whole picture and probably and well that's not probably of course no number will, will tell the whole picture. But the goal is to look at the economic welfare in a more complete way than GDP does. And I think this uh, does the NWI quite well. Okay, and my
0: understanding is that you actually track GDP against NWI in Germany. So you do a comparison between the two. Have there been any surprising uh, differences between GDP and NWI in Germany so far? Well, there
3: are quite a few differences. If you look at the GDP in the last, well, let's say 25 years since 1991 for Germany, there are no older numbers available. Then you can say that GDP has risen quite stable over the time to, until now and about 30 points something like that over the years if you look at the nwi at the other hand you see uh, three different phases in the first uh, phase from 1991 to 1999 well the the nwi also rises quite uh, like the gdp this is mainly caused by the rising consumption but also decreasing environmental uh, negative environmental effects so but in the next phase from 1999 to, to 2005, the picture gets quite different. Uh, GDP is still rising, but NWR is going downwards in this phase about nine points. This is mainly caused by rising income inequality because, in this phase, income inequality in Germany has risen quite a lot. Afterwards, from 2005 until now, you can say nwi was quite a constant in germany so there were different effects uh, their income inequality was quite stable consumption didn't go up that much and environmental effects were a little bit negative in the, in the total but there was not so much going on on the other hand uh, gdp is, is still going up on a quite a straight line just uh, in the financial crisis in 2009 you have a little bit of a downwards trend but overall you have a quite different picture in Germany if you compare NWI to to GDP. Okay and
0: as you're aware there's an increasing interest in the sustainable development goals of the United Nations the mm-hmm. so-called SDGs. Uh, how do you see N- the NWI in comparison with the sustainable development goals or do you see them aligning at all? Well,
3: the first main difference between the SDGs and the NWR is that the SDGs is only or is an indicator system. You have, I think. 169 indicators there so that is the main difference to nwi here is that nwi tries to or and does it uh, calculate only one number an index number which is put in monetary terms there and which which limits nwi because of the monetization many aspects which are included in the sdgs cannot uh, cannot be included in the nwi for example, uh, gender inequality or gender equality, there is no way to incorporate that in the monetary terms. So you have it is it is not in the NWI at least in a direct manner. It is it isn't. And on the other hand, of course, there are many um, well, linkages between NWI and S- the SDGs. For example, if you look at SDG 10 reducing inequalities, the NWI has income inequality as one of the major components. So if you reduce income inequality, uh, NWI will improve and this will also show in the SDGs and the ind- indicators concerning income inequality. And on the other hand, of course, environmental indicators is a big uh, part of SDGs. And some of them, for example, concerning climate change, are also uh, included in the NWI. So you have, of course, uh, linkages between NWI and SDGs, but there are different methods how to try to, to give an overview over the situation. And the main, main advantage of NWI is that you have one number at the end, which you can look at. But of course, this also, uh, well, limits the the components which can be included.
0: Okay. All sounds very fascinating. So, Fest has been involved with NWI for many years, but what do you see as the future of of the index and do you see it evolving in any way or what are the developments which may
3: happen? Well, um, of course, um, much of the methodology and, and numbers used in NWI. Are open for debate in some contexts. So if you look, for example, on the cost factor for uh, CO2 emissions. There's quite a big debate what the real damages of CO2 emissions are, so we try to use the best available knowledge on this matter. So in the case of the CO2 emissions, for example, means that we use the proposal of the German Department of Environment, which uh, proposes a CO2 cost factor of 80 euro per ton CO2. But in this context, in last year, I think at the end of last year, the German Department of Environment put out a new methodology, how they like to uh, price CO2 emissions. I think it's now about uh, 180 euro per tonne. So, as you can see on this example, we always have to look to, at new data, new methodology to improve our index. And that's why we also always say that the NWI is still, is still an open concept. So this, uh, for one, includes things like better data for already existing uh, components, but we also want to try to include new components, which we now cannot include because we don't have the data for it. For example, the, the losses of biodiversity now uh, included in the NWR only as a memory, memory value because there isn't enough data to really calculate in a monetized way the losses of biodiversity so we always always try to better the methodology and try to get better numbers so that's the one thing of course the other thing would be as you already mentioned we try um, to do calculations to get corporations with other countries to calculate the NWI, uh, also for other countries, not only Germany. And as you said, we already did that with FASTA in Ireland, uh, where we published a feasibility study, I think, last year, or prior to that, two years ago, maybe, where we published the first calculations of the NWI for Ireland. And we hope that we can continue this work and maybe get even more European countries uh, to join in.
1: That was Dr. Benjamin Held, describing how the National Welfare Index gives quite a different picture of well-being in Germany over the past few decades than that indicated by the GDP figures.
0: As Benjamin Held mentioned, the attempt to reduce well-being, even if it's only economic well-being, to a single monetary figure is inherently rather limiting. Moreover, the National Welfare Index still considers increased consumption to essentially be a positive thing albeit with some important caveats. The idea that increasing consumption is inherently a good thing, or could be, once it's angelized, to use the economist and Daly's term, is extremely widespread. Economic growth is also one of the sustainable development goals of the UN. But is green growth actually a contradiction in terms?
1: Is it really possible to have an economy that expands constantly, but that also meets our environmental and social needs. Can we decouple growth from environmental damage? Some people claim that's actually happening already. For example, the Swedish Minister of Finance, Magdalena Andersson, stated in 2016 that over the past two and a half decades, Sweden has had GDP growth of 60% and at the same time, its emissions have been reduced by 25%. I talked to Professor Clive Spash, an ecological economist who holds the Chair of Public Policy and Governance at Vienna University of Economics and Business, and who's done extensive research into the relationship between greenhouse gas emissions and economic growth?
4: So, you know, there's a lot of issues around the, the, the decoupling uh, to start with. I mean, if we think about decoupling, you know, what is the the bigger issue is what is it all about in terms of divorcing GDP from emissions? We could say typically it's carbon emissions that they're only focusing on, which is only one greenhouse gas. It's about you know, 50, maybe 60% of the forcing. So there's 40% left out for the, from the very start. And then why would we be concerned about decoupling emissions from GDP anyway? The planet doesn't care about GDP. The planet is concerned because we're having climate forcing from gases, right? absolute gases. So decoupling is a total uh, misnomer in some ways. Uh, it's a diversion. It's a red herring. So you can have more GDP and you can have the same emissions. So you just increase your GDP, the planet's going to be destroyed and we're going to have climate change with the same level of emissions anyway. So basically the problem is that you aren't addressing the fundamental issue, which is we need to actually reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And we need to reduce all greenhouse gas emissions, not just carbon dioxide anyway. So people who are getting very happy about the fact that they're divorcing CO2 emissions from GDP and not addressing the issue of climate change. Then we get into the issue of actually, okay, so what are they claiming when they say that they're divorcing GDP from, uh, from CO2 emissions? You know, most of the time it's a, it's a rate. So it's, the, it's not actually the absolute levels that are being divorced. So if GDP <clears throat> is staying at the same level mm-hmm. and the emissions were going down, it's the rate of which, uh, which is being divorced, so it's relative. If we want to get absolutely coupling, so you want emissions to absolutely go down relative to GDP, this is something that happens very rarely. So the kind of things you get, if you look at the Swedish case, what happens in Sweden? Sweden puts in a tax. Sweden puts in a tax which is actually only on certain sectors. It's about 60% of the CO2 emission sectors, according to their own figures. So it's a limited range of sectors. Mm-hmm. They actually give allowances for the most polluting and intensive industries in order to get them politically on board. They don't actually include them in the tax or they give them tax breaks. In addition, when they implement the tax, they reduce other taxes, which means that you boost aggregate demand or maintain aggregate demand the same. Now, if you increase the, or, or leave the aggregate demand the same, the scale of the economy is either growing or the scale of the economy is staying the same. Again, we're back to the issue, well, if the scale of the economy is the same, then you're going to have a boost in terms of consumption, and that means that you're going to get a boost in terms of the energy-related emissions. Now, the other thing is that when these emissions are being measured, they're typically done on a nation-state basis. So you say Sweden, okay, and then what do we include as Sweden's emissions? Well, we've already got this artificial boundary, which we're calling a nation-state. Why? Mm. The planet doesn't care about the nation-state. The planet cares about the emissions. Now, what does Sweden do in terms of its emissions? So we take something like we're going to have a production base, which is the normal measure, so you get anomalies now. If you're a, a nation that happens to be producing, say, lots of oil, like Norway, then your emissions don't get counted under a production emissions base because you sell that oil to somebody else, and it's their responsibility. Or we can look at things like... You know, all the Scandinavian countries have a lot of emissions related to the shipping sector because they get a lot of stuff brought in by ship. Now, that international shipping sector is something, again, which doesn't get taken into account. So then you switch and you say, okay, well, we should look at consumption-based measures. So you switch to a consumption-based measure, you get a different picture again. Consumption-based measures will try to capture the emissions that are related to everything that you're consuming. So it's down to who's consuming what. So say Sweden decides that they're going to import lots of stuff from China, then they should start taking into the emissions from the Chinese production processes into what they're consuming. So now we get into a situation where how much do they export and how much do they import in terms of emissions? Right. So we're trying to balance this up. And what this this means that the, the whole decoupling um, uh, scenarios and the whole decoupling debate is a is a mess of accountancy. It's all about how do you measure these things? How do you think take these things? In, what do you include? What do you exclude? Mm. And if you take just products, right? So you take products, and we say we're going to we're importing a lot of stuff uh, from China these days into Europe, Germany and other countries massively importing from China, offshoring their industries. So the industries have gone to China and other Southeast Asia, India, and so on, because the labor is cheap. They have very low environmental quality standards, they have uh, no healthcare systems, they have no welfare state, so you can can do things cheaply. So you offshore your production to places like China, and then you re-import the the products from China. So the Chinese in the production sector, they're the ones who get the responsibility for the emissions. The Chinese are the dirty industries. Now, what happens if China underreports its emissions? So there's been a lot of discussion about who are actually measuring these emissions in the first place. Countries have an incentive not to report their emissions, don't they? So they can underreport their emissions. Let's say China underreports its emissions by 10%. Sweden has massively increased its importation of products from China. The intensity, energy intensity, if you look at it, Swedish imports uh, and their CO2 emissions has been increasing. And if China is under-reporting by 10%, then say goodbye to all your decoupling in Sweden. It doesn't exist. So these are the kind of issues that you get into, right? And and I come back to this point. Who cares anyway in terms of planetary change? Decoupling is irrelevant. I mean, there's another big issue I should mention, really. So one of the big things that people emphasize in decoupling is usually fuel switching. Now, fuel switching is probably one of the easiest ones to understand, really. So you say we have a heavy coal sector production of electricity, and they quite often focus on electricity as well as being the, the, the place where decoupling can occur. So you say, well, okay, we produce our electricity using dirty coal, so we switch to gas right? or we switch to oil yeah, because yeah. it has lower CO2 in the production process. Yeah. But you get into a real problem here because what you're, you have to do is you have to take in the supply chain which is not done. Mm. So the supply chain is, how do I get my coal or my oil or my gas? And what you see is that you've got massive environmental destruction and emissions in the production of the oil to get it to the coal-fired or to the power station in the first place. So if you take something like the UK, the UK has uh, traditionally had a lot of coal-fired power stations. The coal-fired power stations were built right next to the mines. So there's no transportation. Mm -hmm. Today, what you have is you have fracking and importation of oil from North America. You've got tar sands production. You have massive environmental devastation going on. Or even better, look at the Swedish case, biofuels. So one of their claims is that they have actually managed to reduce emissions in the transportation sector. And this is something that the Germans also pushed which is basically you mix traditional oil with some biofuels. You it, water it down with biofuels. Now, what are those biofuels? Those biofuels are being produced in South America, land grabbing, clearance of forests, turning into monocultures, massive monoculture through multinational corporations. And basically, the emissions that were created through the destruction of those ecosystems, which were carbon sinks, are totally ignored. So you have a massive emission of carbon in the creation of the biofuel sector, which is ignored. And then you have the importation of those biofuels shipped from South America, emissions of the shipping ignored, mm-hmm. to get them to Sweden so that the Swedish can mix it in with their fuel and claim they're green yeah. and that they've yeah. reduced their emissions. You know, it's absurd. It's, it would be laughable if it weren't so serious. So you've got to look at things like energy return on energy investment, the EROI. So everybody knows that these biofuels are probably negative, but you're putting in more energy to get them than you are actually getting out of them. Now, why would you do that? I mean, economists would say, oh, well, this is a crazy thing to do. Well, the thing is that it's not so crazy because you set up a whole industrial culture which requires fossil fuels. The infrastructure is there. The whole industry is there. Everything is built around them, so of course you invest more energy than you get back because you've invested so much already, you've committed yourself to fossil fuels.
1: That was Professor Clive Spash critiquing the concept of green growth, the idea that emissions and other forms of pollution can be decoupled from economic growth. So if we were to accept the idea that what we need in order to overcome our environmental challenges is actually degrowth rather than green growth, then what? In our next podcast, we'll be asking, what sort of mentality do we need for us to become able to move away from our highly commercial and expansionist economy?
0: Tune in to hear from us on May the 15th.
1: Special thanks to Teng Xiaosheng for her recording of her poem, Assembly Line, and to Yu Yan Chen for reading out her translation and for the in-person advice of Mr. and Mrs. Huang in Lyon. You can find an uninterrupted version of Deng Xiaozhong's recording and also a Mandarin Chinese version on the Beyond the Obvious web page. Many thanks also to Dr. Benjamin Held and to Professor Clive Spash for their interviews and finally to Leisha Kelly for her harp music.